Hi guys, it's Ellis, and this is the Animal Excellency Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about parasitism. All right. So now I know I said that this episode was about symbiotic relationships as a whole, but you can't cover that all. You can't cover all of that information in one episode. So we're going to break it down into three episodes. It's going to be a three-part series. The first episode will be about parasitism, which we will discuss today. Parasitism, sorry. And that is a win-lose situation in the animal world. It is a symbiotic relationship between a species where one organism, the parasite, lives in or on another organism, the host, inevitably causing it harm. The next symbiotic relationship is commensalism. This relationship is is somewhat of a win-lose situation as well. In this relationship, one organism benefits and the other organism is harmed or helped. No action whatsoever befalls the other organism. One organism gains something and in turn wins, but the other organism gains nothing, so in a way it loses. The last symbiotic relationship is mutualism. As you can tell from the name, this relationship is mutual and it is a win-win situation. The relationship benefits both of the organisms that are involved. Before we jump into parasitism, you should know about the basics of any symbiotic relationship. Symbiotic relationships are not just relationships involving one animal eating another for their own gain. Some involve a partnership between two individuals that result in mutual benefits. In other cases, some benefit one animal and have no effect on the other. Other cases involve one animal benefiting while the other suffers or even dies because of the harmful relationship. Symbiotic relationships are long-lasting connections between members of two species. In some cases, some species can't survive without the other. For example, the ant Acropyga solteri and the mealybug Pseudococoidae rizocinae, those are the scientific names of those species, are entirely dependent upon one another. The bugs need the ant's nest as a place to live, and the ants rely on the pugs for food. Other forms of symbiosis are, fal- are facultative, facultative, meaning that although both species can survive alone, at least one of them would suffer from the independence. Other partners come together only for a short period when one partner needs the other to cl- clean off ticks or clean off dead skin. As you can see, some forms of symbiosis, such as the bug and the ant, benefit both animals, but other forms are more deceitful, with one animal actually suffering while the other benefits. Infestations are a good example of parasitism. In some cases, one animal lives in or on another. In other cases, the two animals share a common home. As you can tell from hearing all this, there are different forms of symbiosis. Now that we know the basics about symbiotic relationships, let's get into parasitism, the most harmful type of symbiotic relationship there is out there. 
Parasites live at the expense of their hosts. They feed directly from them and in some cases live out part or all of their life cycle in or on them. A host may die as an indirect result of a parasitic infection, but it is unusual for a parasite to kill its host directly. Why? Why wouldn't a parasite kill its host? Because they rely on them. They use them and need them as much as they can. Because without them, part of their life cycle, or for some species, all of their life cycles, would not be completed. However, they are used until they are no longer needed. At that point, some parasites kill their hosts. Other times, the hosts die from stress, from the stress or trauma of the infection. Other times, a host will die from dehydration or starvation. Why is that? Well, in some cases, when a parasite has affected infected a host, it will control it, forcing it to do exactly what it wants without thinking about the host's needs, which inevitably will result in the host dying. Parasites are usually far smaller than their hosts and reproduce at a far faster rate. This is very common. In many cases, parasites and their hosts have co-evolved to the extent that some parasites have only one host, only one, and they rely on that one host. Parasites may live their entire life associated with a single host, or they may have a complex life cycle involving a number of host species, so it varies. The feeding apparatus and behavior of parasites is highly specialized. For example, Female mosquitoes have piercing mouthparts that act like a serrated syringe. Once she has chosen a victim and landed, she stabs her syringe into the victim. She then puts her saliva into the host, promoting blood flow, which she drinks. Now that you know about parasitism, I'm going to give you more examples of it in the natural world. So we know the basics about a symbiotic relationship, we know the basics about parasitism, we know the basics about commensalism, and we know the basics about mutualism. But we will, we will learn more about commensalism and mutualism in the next two episodes. But this is just the basics. So now we have examples of parasitism in the natural world. Our first example is about an animal that is well known and hated like almost no other on the planet. Ticks. They are small, blood-sucking parasites that are very, very hard to remove. Many species transmit diseases to animals and people. Some ticks are so small that they may be difficult to see, while others are very large and undeniably noticeable. Some diseases that ticks transmit are delivered through bites, and all ticks live by feeding on the blood of mammals, birds, and sometimes even reptiles and amphibians. Ticks are solitary, and one of them is more than enough. However, male and female ticks will meet up on a host and mate. Many male and female ticks will cluster together on the same host to breed, so there will be multiple breeding sites on one host. This causes an infestation. A cluster of ticks can reduce a host's physical strength and good health. That might seem obvious, but, you know, just wanted to let you know. Ticks are not good for any host whatsoever. All right, that was our first example, ticks of a parasite.
Now, here's another parasitic animal that you would not expect. It's called the cookie cutter shark. This shark may have a fun and nice sounding name, but this shark is not the kind of creature you want to get in the water with. This shark is a nocturnal predator. It is known to eat squid and small fishes, but it is also a parasite of much larger animals. This shark has lips that form a suction seal around the mouth. The teeth are small in the upper jaw and large and triangular in the lower jaw. This jaw is made to take bite-sized pieces out of larger prey. However, this shark is incredibly small, reaching up to 22 inches long. So it is almost always thought of as an easy meal by dolphins and anything larger than itself, such as fish. When a larger creature is about to strike or attack or even eat this creature, the cookie cutter shark turns on them and bites, spins around, using its large triangular teeth to tear a circular piece of flesh from its victim. When the larger creature struggles, it only helps the cookie cutter shark. The movement creates a pulling action that helps the cookie cutter shark get its meal. The injured creature is left with a cookie-shaped wound, which is where the shark got its name. The third and last example for today is the candiru. Candirus are tiny parasitic fish that live in burrows on sandy riverbeds. They wait for prey to come near before striking. These fish are almost translucent, making them hard for fish to spot them until it's too late. However, when they are extremely hungry, they will follow chemical cues in the water. Now, chemical cues are expelled from the gills of fish, or the candiru's victims in this case. When they find their victim, they insert themselves under their gill plates. How do they get under their gills, and how do they stay there? Well, it wriggles under the gill as fast as it can before the fish notices, and it uses spines behind its head to puncture the surface of the gill to remain locked in to its host. This enables the parasite, the parasitic fish, to attach itself to its host. The spines cause the victim to bleed, which the candiro sucks up and actually drinks. That is crazy. This fish feeds on other fish's blood. Once it, is, once it has finished feeding on its victim's blood, it retracts its spines and swims away as if nothing ever happened. The fish is left shocked and it starts bleeding, which is horrible because the blood in the water can attract anything. You know, sharks, anything larger than the, that fish, the victim, is now an, you know, a potential victim for other predators because they can smell the blood in the water. So the candiru not only helps by harming and you know, taking blood from its victim, but it also increases the chances of that victim getting attacked by another animal. Some of you may have found this episode a little bit disturbing and disgusting with the blood and the ticks, but it is good to learn about nature. It's important. If we begin to learn about nature, then we will understand why it is so important and crucial to a healthy planet and why wildlife and wild places should be saved. All right, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Be sure to comment, rate, and subscribe. Get back 
come back, sorry, come back next time to learn about another symbiotic relationship. The second part in our three-part series, today was parasitism, tomorrow's commensal, no, next time is commensalism. Get ready for it. I'm Ellis, and this is the Animal Excellency Podcast. See you next time. (laughs) 